Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 30. We will finish this tonight. Believe it or not, I was telling someone that uh, I think the longest I ever taught was about, a, my wife keeps track, about an hour and five minutes. I don't believe that. But uh, I might be, I might make you guys feel like Eutychus this evening and just continue on and on and on and see who's the first one to fall out. Connor said he would never do it because he loves the word, but we'll see. But David, in chapter 29, David has fled from the persecution of King Saul, and he seeks refuge among the Philistines, in an action that the Bible regards as an ungodly act. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1 through 2 says this, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul, even though Jonathan has spoke to him, even though Saul had said he would be king. He says, There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me. He will tire of looking for me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the latter part of that verse says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? David does this, and to do this, he has to fit in among the Philistines, to fit in among the wicked. And so he begins a life of deceit as he secretly made war on Israel's enemies. They didn't know that. But his cunning game, we found out in chapter 29, would come to an end. As the Philistines, they gathered to invade Israel, they forced David to choose sides. Would he choose the side of his enemies or would he choose the side of Israel? But as we found out that the four kings of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, they decided, hey, we don't want David and his men with us. So David goes back. And that, once again, is the grace of God that allowed him not to fight against his own brethren. He goes back to the southern part of the desert. And verse 1 tells us this. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day. So they were covering about 25 miles a day from Aphek to Ziglag, where Achish, the king, the Lord, had given him this area. It was a three-day journey. I'm sure their hearts must have been merry as they're going on the way home. They're tired. They're exhausted. And they are expecting, I would say, all of the comforts of home as well as seeing their family and their children. But can you imagine as they draw nigh, they begin to smell smoke. They begin to see it also. And surely this alarms them. So I can see they're marching in rank and all of a sudden they break rank and they begin to ride their camels and their horses to get to their area. And so it says, so it was the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziglag attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire. David and his men had been up north once again trying to go to war with the Philistines. So the Amalekites, they take advantage of this. 
and they leave the city of Ziglag defenseless. Verse 2 says, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. That was the grace of God that they didn't kill anyone. Because remember, when David and his men were making their raids, they killed everyone. First Samuel chapter 27, verse 9 tells us, Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And I'm so thankful that the Lord is gracious and he's merciful to us. He does not discipline us the way we deserve. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. David is about to go through this chastening. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. After all of the hardships and distresses of so many years, month after month of David being harassed, going on, of being in flight and danger, David has finally reached a breaking point. Once again, uh, Ziglag was a fortified city, but that's useless unless the Lord is defending you. Psalms 127 tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I want us to understand God is letting us know when we are outside of his will, there's no fortress, there's no security anywhere, no matter if you are in a fortified city, because David has a problem with self-will. David is only thinking about himself for these last 16 months. So this is a turning point of David's life. He begins to turn back to the Lord. He's been in a backslidden state, half-hearted state with the Lord for about 16 years, because when he left Jonathan, 16 years he spent away from Israel. 16 months he stayed with Achish. And of course, though he's backslidden, he's still in God's seminary. God is still training him to be the king of Israel one day. So verse, verse 4 tells us, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until, that's a long time, they had no more power to weep. I've never wept like that. I've I seen that one time when my dad passed with my mom, and she just wept and wept until she couldn't weep anymore. This blow would turn David around. Not only would it turn David around, but it would be the last straw for his men because they were weary also. And David's 200 wives, and he knew them, the Jezreelite, 
and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed in straits, for the people spoke of stoning him, and this is his own men, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. If we look closely at David right here, if we really study him, we will see King Saul. He had turned away from God's path and God's plan at this time. Because of that, these men are wanting to stone him. And these are the same men who had came to him in chapter 22, verse 2, when it says, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Because these men, they had hated Saul because everything they had in their lives, Saul had taken away from them. And David has to be thinking the look that they had given King Saul in the cave of Adullam, they're looking at him the same way. And it's a look of disgust and disdain that they had given Saul. These are men that have gone to battle with him, been hungry and cold and thirsty with him. And really, David deserved their scorn because who would leave all of their people, the men and women behind, and go to war against the Philistines with no troops left there. The Amalekites found the exact time to go to war against Ziglag, and it was to their advantage. David, he's in straits right here. Have you ever said this was the straw that broke the camel's back, and then something worse happens? Well, that's what Ziglag is. It's the next straw, and it would devastate David, but it would turn him back to the Lord. There's two reasons why David suffered greatly at Ziglag. One, we know that he's in a backslidden state with respect to his faith. So everything that he was doing was of his own making. Everything that was going wrong in his life was of his own making. But God, once again, he was preparing him to be king. And so God was determined he would do whatever it took to turn David around and give him a trusting heart to obey the Lord. It tells us in verse 6, the latter part of verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Once again, in Adullam, in the cave, David was rightly a victim, but now he's the cause of all of these problems. And it seems he comes to his senses like the prodigal in the pigsty, and he turns back to God. He finally has David all along, even though he has 600 men around him. David has given up on everything. He has given up on, I can do this. He's given up on his self-ingenuity. I can make everything all right. I can handle this. And now he knows he can't do it. And so he now does something that Saul never did. And he turns back to the Lord. And he turns back to the Lord in genuine faith. 
I love a lot of qualities about David, but the most quality that I love about him, when he would fail, when he would make mistakes, he would quickly repent and turn back to the Lord. His son Solomon wasn't like that. 1 Kings 11, the latter part of verse 4 tells us, God says, your heart, speaking of Solomon, is not loyal to the Lord your God, as was the heart of your father David. I'm amazed at that verse because, as we know, David had committed adultery. He had committed murder. And God still says, David's heart was loyal to me. And the reason God could say David's heart was loyal to him, David never turned away from his God. His son Solomon married foreign women, had all of those concubines, and the scripture says they turned his heart away from God. He allowed them to worship idols and set up idols in Jerusalem and worship other gods, and he even did that. But David never did. David knew who God was. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, remember, uh, Doig had killed every priest in Nob, and it was uh, Abimelech, I mean, Abiathar, who ran away. He says, please bring me the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. This was a moment of utter desperation. David did one thing that God had been wanting him to do. He begins to strengthen himself in the Lord. Everyone is crying. Everyone is hopeless. And David begins to think about God again. Now, what is strengthening yourself in the Lord? We have a clue when, remember when Uh, Jonathan goes out to the field and meets David after he shoots the, the arrows, and he tells David, all of the promises that God had made you, has made you, they will come to fruition. You will be king. Nothing will prevent you from being king. Just trust God. And so David, in this moment, He sends for the ephod. We know inside that apron was two stones. Many people say it was a black stone or a white stone, light and and, uh, reflections, or the umen and the thumen, and it would give you a yes or no answer to the question you would ask. And it wasn't because of these stones, because remember, Saul came, and he was asking for the Lord to reveal himself to him, but God wouldn't do it because Saul never repented. God moved on David's heart. David repented genuinely. God knew that. David calls for the ephod, and he begins to speak to the Lord, and God once again speaks to him back. He tells him this, And this is the first time David has cried out to the Lord in the Scriptures in 16 months, doing everything his way, the way he thought was right. He never cried out to the Lord. And when he asked the Lord, he's been in rebellion, but now he's repentant, 
And it says, so David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? I'm not going to do anything anymore, Lord, unless I hear from you first. Notice what the Lord, a gracious, a long-suffering God, a merciful God, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, excuse me, do I know you? He doesn't say, your voice sounds familiar. I haven't heard from you in 16 months. What's your name? We do that. God doesn't do that. And God quickly answers David. And the same way he answers David, he will answer us. If we repent, even if we've been backslidden, whether it's been 16 days, 16 months, or 16 years, if we repent of our sins and genuinely turn back to the Lord, he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to bring them up again. And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. Saul refused to listen, and he turned to his own phony and empty spirituality, but he never turned back to the Lord. David has been backslidden, and he repents and turns to Jesus because Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He says in verse 9, so David went. David went, but David does not know where to go. The Amalekites, they were a nomadic tribe, so they didn't sit in one place long. They would go and stay anywhere they wanted to, and so David doesn't know where they're at, but Psalms 37, 23 reminds us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. It says, and David went, he and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. It doesn't mean when we repent and turn back to the Lord, when he recommissions us, that it will be easy. Because this is not easy that David is about to go through, but he knows God is with him and he can handle it. God has given us everything for life and godliness. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. It just so happened. They didn't know where they were going, but they find this Egyptian in the field. Why? Because now he's right with the Lord. And that's how it works when you're right with the Lord. He blesses you. I'm reminded of the servant in Genesis chapter 24, and I believe the servant was Eleazar. But anyway, Abraham sends the servant to get a bride for Isaac. And as he goes, and when he finds Rebekah, this is what he says in Genesis 24, 26 through 27. Then the man bowed down his head 
and worship the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. Here's the key. As for me, being on the way, being where I'm supposed to be, allowing the Lord to lead me, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. That's the way it is. Whether we know the circumstances and the situations that may befall us, we have the guidebook. And if we are obedient to the word of God, no matter what it looks like, he's going to lead us in the right way. It says, and they gave him the Egyptian bread and he ate. And they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. David has been extended grace by God, and this is how it works. It's easy for him to extend grace. If you see people who don't or have a hard time extending grace, they've forgotten the grace God has given them. And so we should never forget that. And as long as we understand that God lavishes his grace upon us daily, we should lavish grace on others. Then David said to him, to whom do I can see this picture in my mind's eye? Because I see them out in the wilderness. They run across this Egyptian David runs to him, and he begins to speak to him. Then David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. His heart gets tense for a minute, and his ears perks up. And my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. That's the flesh for you. It rings and wears you out, and then it throws you away. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. I'm sure David is just wanting to choke him at this time, but but then he remembers what he penned. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, so they must have made an agreement, there they were spread out over all the land, (laughs) eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Isn't that the view of the world? Eating, drinking, and dancing as if they're the happiest and the most joyous people in the world. That bothers me 
a lot. So pray for me. When I see the ungodly, they seem as if they're so happy and everything goes right. And that's what Asaph was saying. So I don't feel I'm along in this area because he said this. When I thought how to understand this, they just have fun all the time. They just, they're just pleasurable all the time. He said, it was too painful for me. I couldn't stand it. And then he said, what we should all do until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood therein. That's what's about to happen to these Amalekites. Then David attacked them from twilight as light begins a new day until the evening of the next day to dusk. That's a long time warring. And it says, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men. They must have been the fastest who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered, notice what it says, all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all all. No doubt David could never found his enemies if God wouldn't have put that Egyptian right there to lead him. And he did all of this by trusting God. We should learn, and I hope we are learning, the promises of Paul when he said in Philippians 4.19, no matter what we're going through, no matter what trials we may face in this life, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil, meaning he would distribute everything. But then there's always going to be some friction. So here it comes. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. What a happy scene. Then all the wicked and worthless men, the NIV says evil and troublemakers, of those who went with David, answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, now notice how David handles this issue. He doesn't start berating people. He doesn't start just getting angry and upset with people. He says, my brethren, my brethren, you shall not do so with what, and this is how he breaks free, what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. A soft answer, Victor, turns away wrath. That's what he does. David says, this is the Lord's bounty. Therefore, the spoils belong to him, and I will divide them up. He says, for who will heed you in this matter? Besides, no one is going to agree with you in this matter. 
I'm amazed at this because we know that the Godhead is unified. So should God's covenant people, and so should the body of Christ be in unity. Not all of us run the same risk or perform the same task. We all do different things here in the body of Christ. That's why Paul says the eye can't say to the nose or the ear can't say to the hand, I don't need you, any of those things. We all are one together. And that's what David is saying here. And he's wise. And the reason David is wise, he hasn't made a wise move in 16 years, but he makes a wise move here because he's back in fellowship with the Lord, and the Lord is using him once again. He says, but as his part is whose goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel to do this. Churches today, we always speak of people who go on mission trips. They seem to get the fanfare, and that's okay. But those who stay back and pray for those who go on mission trips, believe me, in the kingdom of heaven, their rewards will be the same because they are praying to the Lord to give them grace that the gospel will be spread to those missionaries. Now, when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah. Commentator says he does this because he's greasing the ledger, trying to make friends with these other leaders in Judah. But David had been giving them spoils here and there. And these Amalekites, they've been raiding Judah also. This is David's compassionate heart that's happening here, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth, of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aor, those who were in Zipmoth, those who were in Eshtimoa, those who were in Rakal, those who were in the cities of the Jeremalites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in, the, in Hormah, those who were in Cherazin, those who were in Akkok, those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. To rove. After 16 months, a self-imposed exile, because he went there and the Lord didn't want him to go, David, he was fending for himself all of this time. His restoration has brought compassion back to his heart and love for God's people. And the evidence of God's grace, once again, is the compassion we dole out to others. Chapter 31, an easy chapter, but it's a little in here. Every human being, we have a primary theme in our life, and it can be discerned if you hang around people long enough. We are known by some characteristic that stands out in our lives. But hopefully as believers, as we allow the Lord to have his way in us, 
the virtues in us will be righteousness, peace, love, joy in the Holy Spirit. But as we come to the end of Saul's life, it's really not hard to see the dominant characteristic in his life. And it's an impenitent heart. Saul always had a hard time of repenting. Isaiah lists repentance coupled with faith as the key to receiving the blessings of God. The reason I know that Isaiah 55, 7 tells us, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Saul would never repent and he forfeited the grace of God. So there could be only one end, and it was a tragic end for him, and it will come on the mountain of Mount Gilboa. This is a huge, epic failure. Remember in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, when they went to war against uh, Ebenezer, when, when Eli and his sons took the Ark of the Covenant there, and they were all slain on the battlefield. That's when Saul comes into the picture. Knowing this, they would do the same thing. And that, what that does is defame God. Israel armed might will be broken. Her leadership will be broken. Her land will be occupied. And the name of Yahweh will be defamed just because of this loss to the Philistines. And I want, you, I want you to see one more thing, because we know the Holy Spirit wrote the Scripture, and he arranged it the way he wanted it, wanted it to be. But what's happening here, while uh, David and his men was battling to the north with the Amalekites, simultaneously uh, Saul and his men is battling in, with Saul against the Philistines. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see this contrast. One will be victorious and one will fail. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from the, before the Philistines. And according to first, verse 1, the Israelites are in flight. They're running from the Philistines, and they make their final stand on Mount Gilboa. And it says, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Once God had removed his hand of protection from Saul, it was just a matter of time. He gave Saul opportunity after opportunity to repent and come back to him. And he never did. And so it was just a matter of time before this would happen. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Amenadab, and Malkishua, Saul's son. You know, I wonder, while Saul was fighting and his, and his sons were fighting, did he look around and see Malkishua or Amenadab or Jonathan fall in battle. And I wonder, did he 
ever think this was all because of my rebellion, that I'm watching my children be slain in battle. I wonder, did he ever think that? It says, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, the coward that he is, and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. The question is, what about suicide? We know Judas committed suicide and he opened his eyes, no doubt about it, in hell. But we have to understand Judas wasn't a believer. Believers, I think, who are mentally ill or so uh, depressed and their reasoning become impaired, if they commit suicide, in my opinion, and in my reading of the scriptures and, and just looking at this, this area, I think there's grace there. I think there's forgiveness there. I think of Tony Dungy's son. And I know Tony Dungy's, he's a retired football coach now, but he had a son who committed suicide. And he said, yeah, he was a strong believer, but he always had mental issues and depression issues. And at the spur of that moment, he took his life. But once again, I believe there's forgiveness there for those types. Verse 6 So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. You know, I don't know about Amenadab or Malkishua. I don't know what kind of men they were. But we don't need to feel sorry for Jonathan. I could see in my mind's eye Jonathan on the battlefield, holding up the line, fighting, killing many of men, and all of a sudden... Maybe an arrow hit him, or maybe he was hit by a sword, and he died. But Jonathan was a godly man. He was a courageous man, and he was a faithful man. Jonathan was a friend to David. Jonathan was a man of humility, even though, even though he knew he was the crown prince. He gladly gave that up. For David, because he knew the Lord wanted David to be king. And he loved his parents, even Saul. And he stayed by Saul's side, even in battle. So we don't have to worry about Jonathan. We'll see Jonathan in the kingdom. Yahweh was pleased with Jonathan, and, and Jonathan died exactly where God wanted him to do by the side of his father. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain 
that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped, stripped of his armor, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. What's happening is the name of the Lord is being blasphemed by the rebellion once again of Saul and by his death that the children of Israel, who one should put a hundred to flight and ten put, should put a thousand to flight, they are in flight because of Saul's rebellion. And now they hang them, chop off his head, and hang them on the wall. And notice it says, and they put his gear, his armor, in the temple of their idols, Dagon, not bringing any glory to the name of Yahweh. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night. And took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree. Saul loved to lie under a tamarisk tree, so that's where they buried them, at Jabesh and, and fasted seven days. As I tell you that account of Saul's armor bearer, that he fell on his sword and Saul fell on his sword. It seems that Saul doesn't commit suicide because uh, 2 Samuel, which we will be going to after this chapter 1, will tell us that a Amalekite who's raiding the battlefield comes up and he still, and he sees Saul with life still in him. And the Amalekite says, Saul begged him to put him to death and he says he did. And so we'll look into that a little bit more, and I, I kind of feel like that's happened. What we should take from this is that we all know God is a gracious God, and God is a long-suffering God, and it's not his will that anyone should perish. And if all we have to do is turn back to him, and he's quick to forgive us, and we should also remember that every day we walk in this world, we are here to bring glory, honor, and fame to the name of Jesus Christ. And when we don't do that, we give the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme his name. And we, we don't want to do that. We're salt and light. We're the light of the world. And we should honor the great privilege and responsibility we have to shine like stars in the universe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you came. God becomes man in, the, in Bethlehem, and you died for the sins of humanity. And all those that will repent of their sins, you will welcome them into your family to live and reign with you forever. But Lord, as we walk in this life, 
if we do stumble, if we do fall, your grace is there to pick us up. And your grace is there to dust us off and to continue to walk with you. Job said, though the righteous man falls seven times, it's your grace, God, that gets us back up. So let's be people of God like David that will quickly dust ourselves off and follow you, Lord, with our whole heart and bring glory to your name. Lord, we continue to pray for Joanne that you would be merciful to us, that, you would, that she would turn the corner, Lord, and you would bring healing. Lord, I pray that she will have a good night's rest. I pray that you would energize Rick and allow him to sleep and get rest, Father God, that you would touch them supernaturally, Father. Lord, I continue to pray for Bob and Sue. Lord, I pray that they're having a great time. I pray that Sue is doing well. Continue to keep your loving arms around them. Lord, if there's any that's sick here at CR, Lord, I pray that you would just cuddle up to them and show them how much you love them. I continue to pray for Erica, Lord. I thank you for that great report that you gave gave us, Father. Lord, we don't deserve any of your blessings, but you lavish them upon us, Lord. So, Lord, order our steps and give us grace to follow you with a loyal heart. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.